welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I am your host, Bill Real, and grateful for the chance to be with you today. This is going to be uh, a lot of fun, I think. And so I'm really excited uh, for the conversation that we're going to have today. And uh, what we're going to do today is talk about um, all of the uh, sources that uh, critics talk about Joseph Smith using to create the standard works of the LDS church or Mormonism for that matter, generally, and uh, the sources that he uses to implement theology. And so uh, I, I've prepared a PowerPoint today, and uh, I think we're going to have a really fascinating conversation that I think most folks uh, will understand it. And it's going to be at a, a, a real high level. We're not going to dive deep into this stuff. I'm hoping that within an hour, hour and a half, we can cover most of this material uh, extremely adequately. And so the first thing I want to talk about is the books that have deep similarities to uh, Mormonism. And so what I'm going to do is put up on the, the screen here. And so what we've got is The Late War. And The Late War was written in 1817 by Gilbert Hunt. Uh, it, the, what we know about it is that the copies that we have, there are lots of copies of The Late War uh, in existence. And those copies are really heavily tattered. Um, and I'll also say this too, by the way, I am, we're talking today about whether Joseph Smith plagiarized or not. And I'm going to tell you up front, I plagiarized tons of material for this, except that when I get done with this podcast and I publish it fully, uh, it will have with it in uh, outline on our site, Mormon Discussions. Uh, I'm sorry, mormondiscussionpodcast.org, so discussion being singular, or MD Podcast, which is my own site for just my, my podcast, MD, standing for Mormon Discussion, mdpodcast.org. And also, here as you're watching it on our YouTube channel or on Facebook where you see it, um, I'll put the outline in there. And then the outline, uh, I will also publish to Reddit, ex-Mormon. And that outline will have tons of hyperlinks. So if you want to dive into any of these particular issues, you can do that. Um, so you can do that. You can certainly go onto Reddit. You can look at the outline. There'll be hyperlinked to all of the sources. You can dive into those deeper and, uh, you know, explore each of these issues more fully. It would take literally days to, to go in depth on all of this. Uh, but we're going to start with the late war. And so, I, again, I, everything you see on the screen, I'm borrowing from uh, other folks. For instance, this one is the Miston uh, uh, Sunday School uh, uh, by Stapley. Um, so anyway, here we go. So late war, uh, 1817 is when it's published. It was written by Gilbert Hunt. There's tons of copies in existence. We have a lot of these books, and they're very heavily tattered. And it's it's believed that this book was used in the school system uh, in, in the early late 18, uh, teens and the early 1820s, which would have been about the time that Joseph Smith was in school. And there are similarities in the late war and we'll, we'll show some of these here as we go, but there are similarities in the late war. Uh, for instance, here you see, and it came to pass that in the same year that the people of Nephi had peace restored unto them, but it, it came to pass in the same year that the people of Columbia were revenged of the evil. Um, so just note, Again, we'll show some of these, but there are just tons of similarities. So uh, you may want to make your screen full screen if you're watching this. By the way, if you're listening to the audio version of this conversation, you're going to be at a bit of a loss. You really should go on to YouTube 
find the Mormon Discussions uh, Incorporated channel and look for uh, the episode that talks about plagiarism within Joseph Smith's Mormonism. Um, you can see, again, when we go into the late war and we find very similar word phrases, and the science behind this is when you get brackets of three of the same words that are not, they're kind of unusual words or very specific words, or brackets of four words or brackets of five words, the, the more of those you find, the more correlation there is, the more likelihood that one work is having influence on the other. And because Gilbert Hunt's Late War is written in 1817, if we find an extreme amount of similarity, we the only conclusion we can draw is that uh, either A, it's just a coincidence, or B, the Late War in 1817 has significant influence on Joseph Smith's writing of the Book of Mormon. And so you can see there like the fourth day of the seventh month, the fourth day of this seventh month, uh, which is, and then it talks about the birth of the day of Columbus, which is in the 10th year of the reign of judges. And most, uh, most believers grasp that uh, the way they would think it is happening is that, um, and this isn't a critical argument, at least it's not an intelligent critical argument, is that Joseph Smith is copying parts of the late war into the Book of Mormon. Rather, it's that he's um, aware of the late war, he's informed about the late war, and uh, just as any of us in our education and in the school system, the books we read, the things we do, the things we participate in, the experiences we have, they, they have um, an effect on us, and they they shape who we are. And if you live in the early 1820s, you are deeply impacted by the Bible. It's going to be the primary book by which uh, your education takes place and the primary book that you and your classmates and your family and friends and uh, you know teachers and everyone is going to be influenced by. But you're also going to have a handful of other books that have influence. And the argument here is that the late war was a common book that was used in the school systems of the day. And the evidence does support that, uh, although we can't find a direct reference uh, of such. Um, but because of the number of books of the late war that are in existence and the, uh, the degree to which those books are worn uh, indicates that such happened. And so as we go through here, you'll see those on the screen that there's lots of phrases that are extremely similar. And I just want to, you to pay attention to one of them in particular. There is the fourth one down where it says the Americas. And notice that the late war talks about a, a mammoth. And the Book of Mormon talks about Kurloms and Kumoms. Um, it, it would be important to note that uh, Orson Pratt in the Journal of Discourses, volume 12, page 340, he also uh, shares that Kurloms are mammoths, which means that he had to have been informed by Joseph Smith or something else within Mormonism, but the, the likelihood is it's most likely that it's Joseph Smith who's telling him that Kurloms are mammoths. And so you see these weird correspondences that that seem to indicate that something's happening um, here. That you know, why would why would the phrasing be similar? And while there are two different words, Orson Pratt tells us it actually means the same thing as the other word. Um, anytime you see the ellipses here, I'll just note this too. Anytime you see the ellipses, recognize that there may be considerable distance 
a paragraph to maybe even a page or two um, in some of these instances between one set of words and another. But the, the, the thing that also should be noted is that there is a significant amount of similarities in terms of word phrasing between the late war and the Book of Mormon to the point here where I'll put another one up on the screen. Uh, this is uh, one of the sites I used here. This is wordtree.org uh, backslash the late war backslash a comparison of the Book of Mormon, and the late war in the United States and Great Britain. Again, this is linked to the outline, but you'll notice like interesting parallels um, and also not a perfect match, but to some degree, the order in which these things appear in one book is also uh, has a slight correlation to the order in which things appear in the other book. So uh, that should also be noted, but you'll see there's tons of them. And then when we get to the bottom of this, because um, then we go about, move down further and we'll talk about some of these other things as well. But then there's a couple other sections that are very similar to what we just showed you that show even more of them. So um, there's the, the Kurloms and Kumoms. Orson Pratt, again, Orson Pratt, the quote, you know, he, he talks about uh, benefit of the elephants, comma, curloms or mammoths and many other animals. So he knew that there was a correlation between that word and the word mammoth. And the late war uses mammoth and Joseph Smith has this uh, created word uh, that he alleges came through in translation of curloms and kumoms. But you get, um, I should back back up here. You get the battle at forts. I mean, so you get all this stuff um, that are just similar. And again, you can go read the site. Uh, but just to note, it's not just one, two. It's not even just this many. Here's a whole nother set of them. You can't read it. It's a little too small. But they're all on the site that I just I just showed you. Oops, I'll point the right way. All on the site I just showed you. And so you get all of these connections. By the way, I won't be able to read comments. I'm all by myself today. So um the comments I'll try to go through when we get to the very end. I'll try to answer any questions that you have, and I'll give some time for some Q&A if you do want to ask. Um, but just note that these are significant, and we'll talk about how significant here in a moment as well. All right. Um, here's the Journal of Discourses, Orson Pratt, just so if people have any doubts, there's the section that talks about it, and here it is. Benefit of the elephants, curloms, or mammoths. Orson Pratt, again, he makes this connection. And to me, that seems significant um, for what it's worth. All right. The, the next one here uh, I want to mention uh, is chiasmus. Um, and I don't know that I'm pronouncing that right, but I've been dealing with that word and what this is for a decade now. And uh, I'm, I'm sometimes bad at pronouncing things, but bear with me. I wanted to show this because uh, apologists often still cite chiasms as a evidence that the of ancient language, hence the Book of Mormon, is real. I just want to note that in the late war, which was written in 1816, I believe published in 1817, that we have a 21-pair chiasm. That means we have 41 verses or 41 parts that make that up. And that also should be understood as being significant. You know, often we point to Alma 36 in the chiasmus that's there and um, and how significant it is. And we ought to note that at today in 2022, we now recognize that the human brain somehow has a tendency 
to put chiastic structures into writing so that when it shows up, it really isn't that big of a deal. And we'll talk about maybe that in a little bit too. But uh, I know that the Book of Mormon didn't have uh, as much um, chiasms or chiastic structures as other works do. I'm actually going to go here and uh, see if I actually have. Here we go. Let's see if it's on this next one. All right. So this is also another book. There are books there. And again, you're going to want to make it full screen. If you do that, these will be at least barely readable at the normal size monitor. But you have the Book of Mormon on the left. That's the um, average chiastic pairs per segment. So how many uh, chiastic structures are in the Book of Mormon? And if you notice other things, uh, Warren's uh, history, I don't know what that is, but manuscript found, view of the Hebrews, um, the Book of Enoch, uh, History of the United States, Common Sense, Around the World in 80 Days. Notice Alice in Wonderland uh, is that middle that middle one there that's almost the tallest. The tallest is Sense and Sensibility, uh, Tale of Two Cities, uh, the Iliad of, uh, of Homer, uh, Antiquities of the Jews. So these are books that have significant chiastic structures in them. And the Book of Mormon is actually not that much compared to other literary works that have been looked at. And so just FYI, if any apologist is going to present to you that chiasms are a big deal, uh, they're really they're really not that significant. I'll mention one more time. Again, I borrowed this from Chris Johnson. All of my sources are hyperlinked in the outline, which I will provide afterward. So they are all cited. So we have uh, those. And so again, chiasmus or chiastic structures really isn't an evidence of the church anymore. Um, apologists should probably stop using it. It is not evidence of ancient writing. It's just evidence that our brain tends to do this. Uh, and it shows up often in significant literary works, many of which are extremely contemporary in the last 200 years. So there's, there's that. All right, other books that we've been talking about, Manuscript Found, which was Solomon Spaulding. These are, and I, I know I've got my thing kind of covering up some of that. We can certainly pull that off. You'll see that there are 100 parallels. These are 62 of them. Um, I'm not going to go through all of these, but some of them both are accounts of early inhabitants of America. Uh, 14, the records required translation. Um Let's see here, 19, the storm continued many days. Some of these are really minor. Some of these are more significant. I'm, I'm not at all saying that Joseph Smith wrote down word for word or, or deeply borrowed thematic elements, but rather that, he, you know, the likelihood that he would, uh, I shouldn't say that, let me say it differently. The possibility that he would have been familiar with this work and hence we can explain some of this. Like, again, if Joseph isn't a true prophet, he is borrowing thematic elements from other sources in his milieu, and um, we ought to find some overlap if those sources are out there, if we're looking at the right things. <clears throat> so manuscript found, Solomon Spaulding. By the way, folks, if you're listening and you're like, man, this is, this is just not that strong, I'm going to acknowledge right up front this first section of books that have deep similarities to the Book of Mormon is what I believe is the weakest section of this presentation. 
And so I hope you'll stick around and see what I'm talking about. The next one here is view of the Hebrews, you know, destruction of Jerusalem, scattering of Israel, restoration of the 10 tribes. There are lots of commonalities. John DeLynn did an interview with Radio Free Mormon where Radio Free Mormon went ahead and read view of the Hebrews all the way through and then sat down with John and talked about those similarities. Uh, RFM thought they were significant and he felt like there was enough uh, connection between the two texts that he felt like Joseph Smith would have had familiarity with the view of the Hebrews. And we have one quote in the historical record that Joseph Smith mentions view of the Hebrews so that we know at least a few years later into his life, he admits being familiar with uh, with the book. <clears throat> so there are tons of uh, overlap uh, there as well. And so um, slide seven and then eight, there's more. This is more of view of the Hebrews. That's slide eight. And here's slide nine, and there's more of you, the Hebrews. And these were all connections, by the way. You'll notice there at the bottom, these are all connections that B.H. Roberts pointed out in his studies of the Book of Mormon. When he was asked to go look at what the critics were saying and to come back, he presented to the brethren that view of the Hebrews seemed to have a very uh, significant connection to the Book of Mormon. He felt it did, and he informed the brethren that he felt that way. Um. And so you can you can go understand that meeting better. I think John DeLynn did an interview on Mormon Stories. Uh, I'm sure somebody will put in the comments again. I don't see the comments because I've, I've got to kind of stick with my sidebar of uh, my screen changes I can make as we go throughout the presentation. So there's view of the Hebrews. And then we've got the first book of Napoleon. The red dots are where these particular pieces in front of and behind each ellipses are found. So you've got things like condemn not the writing and account, the first book of Napoleon, upon the face of the earth, it came to pass, the land of inheritances, their gold and silver, commandments of the Lord, foolish imaginations of the heart, small in stature, Jerusalem, the wickedness, and uh, so on and so forth. Um, you know, Book of Mormon, condemn not the writing, talks about, you know, the first book of Napoleon, the first book of Nephi, upon the face of the earth. But again, in each ellipses, notice that there are significant spaces between um, where critics are saying, like, look, these things are really similar to the uh, defense of the apologist and to the defense of believers. We should note that there is often significant distance between these overlapping similarities between the two texts. So there's that. Um, but I did want to, um, I did want to show for a moment some of these. Uh, let me find it here. So here's the late war. Chapter one. Um, you know, chapter one, this chapter two. So chapter one, now it came to pass. Let me put this up on the screen. And let me make it a little bigger so you guys can maybe see this. You know, it, it uses the same sort of language, right? It came to pass in the thou in the 1812th year of the Christian era, the 36, the 30 and six year after the people. So it is the books that we're referring to use this common language that is also part of the Book of Mormon. So whether you're a believer or a critic, I think we all have to agree that the Book of Mormon is written 
in a 19th century language that reflects the popular books of that day. And, uh, and we find that throughout. In fact, one that's even greater is the book of Napoleon, which was, um, we talked about the late war first, which we just went from, this is the first book of Napoleon. And let me see if I can make this a little bigger. Let me read this. Look at this, how it starts. And behold, it came to pass in these latter days that an evil spirit arose on the face of the earth and greatly troubled the sons of men. And this spirit seized upon and spread amongst the people who dwell in the land of Gaul. Like, doesn't that sound like the Book of Mormon? Now, in this people, the fear of the Lord had not been for many generations, and they had become a corrupt and perverse people. And their chief priest and the nobles of the land and the learned men thereof had become wickedness, can become wicked in the imagination of their hearts and in the practices of their lives. Look on the right-hand side here. And lo, this foolish and wicked counsel of evil, designing men, being seemly and well-pleasing in the sight of the multitude. They uh, raged furiously against all principalities and powers and having slain the good king whom the Lord had appointed to rule over them. You know, and you can do it. Now it came, the bottom left, now it came to pass that the nation of the Gauls continued to be sorely troubled and vexed. Um, you know, and you can go all the way through this and it it is very much, if you were to read this book, if you were to change the words to be book of Mormon pronouns of places and people, you could have add this on. You could go to page, uh, page 531 of the book of Mormon and staple this right to the end. And you would almost not know the difference. Um, and so what you have to start wrestling with in your mind, as we talk about this section, you have to start wrestling with whether it is reasonable to expect that Joseph Smith would be looking at a seer stone in a hat and God is not dictating to him words because this would be problematic if that's the case. So we have to discard what the witnesses tell us about the translation. And then what we have to do is we have to make an assumption that what is instead happening is that God is giving Joseph Smith really general ideas, because if not, you have to buy into that this is the way that Alma and Nephi and Moroni and Helaman and uh, Nephi and Lehi, this is the way they talk. And you would have to then buy into that they talk just like 19th century uh, Americans on the frontier of Palmyra and uh, comparable to the books that are written in nearby geographies that come into Joseph Smith's hands. And I think believer and um, critic recognize that, that we can't go down that road if we're going to try to uphold belief in the church. So what you have to do is you have to believe that uh, Joseph Smith is getting general ideas from the stone in the hat, and then he's putting it into his language and that his language is deeply informed by the books around him, including namely the Bible, but then secondarily books like the late war and the first book of Napoleon. So there's that. <clears throat> All right. From, uh, there, I want to show you kind of the all correspondences and so we will go here to this. Again, full screen is going to work better. 
what Chris Johnson and the folks that he was working with, Chris Johnson is a young guy, uh, ex-Mormon, and he does a video on YouTube that to me is just, um, it's an amazing video. Every ex-Mormon should take an hour out of their day and listen to Chris Johnson's presentation. He covers way, he covers so much ground. Uh, and most informed ex-Mormons are very familiar with this video. So I would suggest you go see it again. It'll be linked in the, in the outline. But what he did was they took a total of 110,268 books, ancient and modern, and then put their uh, words into a computer uh, algorithm database and then explored like which books are the most similar to the Book of Mormon. And so every blue speck on the left side of that screen, now you see solid blue, but that's because there's 110,000 books there. And so there's tons of blue dots and they're all so close together that it pretty much makes up a solid blue color. But we look then to see which books are the uh, most similar uh, to the Book of Mormon. And when you do that, most of the books aren't that close. There are only a handful of books that are extremely close to the Book of Mormon. And you see the Book of Mormon is essentially a flat line at the bottom. You don't see it, but it's essentially the, the horizontal uh, line that makes up the very bottom of that black. And so the books that are the closest are the ones we would expect to find, which is the Book of Commandments, the Book of Abraham, and the Book of Moses. Now, I will note there is a different concept going on in those books, which is in the Book of Abraham, Joseph Smith is looking at some Egyptian papyri that he thinks is the writings of Abraham written by his own hand. The Book of Moses, there isn't any original source for. Uh, Joseph Smith just essentially, again, sort of pun intended, pulls it out of a hat. Then you have the Book of Commandments, which is Joseph Smith praying to Heavenly Father and God directly telling him what to write, I think. Otherwise, you have to go back to saying, like, God just gives him a really general idea. Like, he gives him an impression of, of a concept, and then Joseph is putting it entirely into his own language. If we buy that, and I think we have to, if we buy that as believers, then we're going to have to make a lot more room for error because lots of errors make their way into the collection of the standard works. And we'll get into a few of those as we go along. But outside of the books that Joseph Smith is the translator, if you're a believer, or the author, if you are a critic. And I guess some of the apologists would want to say like, no, I, I believe this is all pseudopigrapha. So I actually am a believer, but I also think that, uh, Joseph Smith is the author. That's fine, but that's a whole other story for another day. The book that shows up is being, you see View of the Hebrews up there just a little bit further up top. You've got Manuscript Found, which is, you know, it's it's similar, but it's not super similar. But View of the Hebrews is sort of similar. And then you've got this uh, first book of Napoleon uh, that stands out uh, as being uh, extremely similar to uh, the Book of Mormon. And this is in terms of like word usage. And so hopefully that makes sense. But again, it's it, most of the books fall in one spot and suddenly like boom out of nowhere, there's this first book of Napoleon 
um, which, you know, which we were reading here, uh, that sounds so much like the Book of Mormon. And it is just extremely similar, way more similar than any other book not authored or translated or dictated by Joseph Smith himself. And so uh, I'll stop here with this section, but just to recognize that I'm not saying Joseph Smith uh, directly plagiarized these works in the way that most of us think of plagiarism, but also recognize that plagiarism is also stealing concepts and ideas. Um, and in some ways, Joseph Smith is right on the fence, right on the razor's edge of what appears to be doing that with the first book of Napoleon, because the language is so similar. Um, and I would encourage folks to go read that, uh, the first book of Napoleon. Um, and it, it's a longer book, but I think as you read it, you would realize there's no way around the book of Mormon, not being the language of uh, Nephi and Mormon and Moroni and Alma and Helaman, but instead it's Joseph Smith's language from his culture and that language is extremely similar, overly similar, perhaps, to the first book of Napoleon, to the point where it can't be just explained as maybe a coincidence. <clears throat> I'm going to leave this section, but again, this is, I think, the weakest section within the conversation that we are having today uh, about uh, these sources. All right, so the, the next one. Um, is the Joseph Smith Sr.'s vision of the tree of life and uh, Nephi's vision of the tree of life. So Lucy Mack Smith, in her biography of her family, uh, I think it's like, it's like the history of Joseph Smith and her progenitors. It's something like that. But Lucy Mack Smith's biography of Joseph Smith, she shares that her husband, Joseph Smith Sr., was prone to have dreams that these dreams were important uh, to the family. And uh, she writes a few of these dreams down in the book. And one of these dreams is just so similar uh, to um, Lehi and Nephi's vision of the tree of life. And so we put it up here on the screen, uh, but we're not going to read the whole dream. Um, but it, again, it's linked in the outline. Uh, Joseph Smith's father's 1811 dream. Uh, she says, Lucy Mack Smith says, Joseph Smith Sr. had this dream in 1811. The whole family knew about the dream. He was big on sharing it and, and telling his children and his wife it was important. He says, I was traveling in an open, desolate field. My guide said, this is, a, this is the desolate world. I came to a narrow path. I beheld a beautiful stream of water. I could see a rope running along the bank of it. I saw a tree such as I had never seen before. It was exceedingly handsome. Its beautiful branches bore a kind of fruit as white as snow. I drew near and began to eat of it, and I found it delicious beyond description, and thought that I must bring my wife and children, and that they, that 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 may partake with me. I'm, I'm assuming they that they may partake with me. Accordingly, I brought my family. And we all commenced eating. We were exceedingly happy, insomuch that our joy could not easily be expressed. While thus engaged, I beheld a spacious building that appeared to reach to the very heavens. It was full of people who were very finely dressed. They pointed the finger of scorn at us, but their but their contumely arrogance, I guess but their arrogance we utterly disregarded in preference to the fruit that was so delicious. 
the guide told me he, but it's the guide he's referring to. He told me it was the pure love of God shed abroad in the hearts of those who love him. Look yonder, he said, you have two more children and you must bring them also. So notice there's this reference that would have been similar in the Book of Mormon to Laman and Lemuel. It's, it's as if Joseph Smith the senior is, is acknowledging, like, my whole family goes to the fruit of the tree, but I've got two children who aren't coming along, and I need to make an effort to get them there. Uh, notice the similarities with uh, the Book of Mormon story. Um, I asked my guide, what was the meaning of the spacious building, which I saw? He replied, it is Babylon, it is Babylon, and it must fall. The people in the doors and windows are the inhabitants thereof who scorn and despise the saints of God because of their humility. And this is Lucy Max Smith again. Oh, there's the title, The Prophet and His Progenitors for Many Generations, chapter 14. So you can go read it yourself. You can see that there are other things where the ellipses are, but they, they were essentially refining it down to the points that have overlapped to uh, Nephi's father, Lehi, his dream in the Book of Mormon about the, uh, the tree of life. The, the similarities are too big to the point where apologists also admit that there is a ton of crossover and their explanation is that uh, it is just God giving Joseph Smith Sr. and giving Lehi uh, very similar dreams, that that's the way God works. Often uh, people are given similar messages by our Father in Heaven. Um you get to answer whether you think that's the most rational conclusion or not, uh, especially in light of all the rest of the things that we are going to cover. The next one is uh, the 1769 King James Version Bible errors copied over. Uh, the errors themselves are problematic because it shows that Joseph Smith absolutely was working with the King James Version of the Bible directly, unless you're going to say, he does have photographic memory, which I don't think the apologist would want to admit because that would raise other problems. But um, if uh, Joseph Smith has a photographic memory, then we have the ability to take all of these works that we're talking about today, and Joseph can simply memorize books and go into the translation and uh, restate them from his memory. And I think if we could prove Joseph Smith had a photographic memory, it would be a weaker argument for the believers and a stronger argument for the critics. So what the apologists do instead is say that when Joseph Smith gets to sections of the Book of Mormon that are going to heavily use the Bible, that Joseph Smith and the scribes would have grabbed the 1769 version of the Bible that Joseph Smith had. And instead of looking at the stone in the hat to get all of the information, would have simply copied over from that 1769 version into the Book of Mormon. Now, that's not a super big deal, because I can, I can see why, in an effort to save time, it might be prudent uh, to do that. The problem, though, is that there are so many other instances in Joseph's translation productions, such as the inspired Bible, where Joseph's mission is to take a book that already has heirs in it, and that God is not okay with those heirs being in there. And so Joseph has, has to spend a significant amount of time 
correcting the errors of another book. So in this instance, we'd have to believe that God wanted to save time and allowed significant errors in only to give Joseph Smith another project later that will take up a significant amount of time, but will be used to take errors out. And so now you have God working from very different motives on two different situations. And again, that just doesn't mesh with my rational brain. Not that God couldn't do that, not that there couldn't be reasons, only that it's less rational than the conclusion I would want to draw uh, from all of this, which we'll get to uh, when we get to the end. These errors aren't minor, by the way. Um, in the King James Version, every time in the 1769, anytime there was italicized words, those words were in doubt uh, by the translators and uh, are believed to be added in by the translators. And later on, we find that many of them are incorrect and they, they tend to be errors that other Bible translations uh, correct uh, and make right. And, and I want to note here, I don't want to get too far off track, but I want to note here that Mormonism imposes that in, uh, in English-speaking languages, the King James Version of the Bible is the one that we should use. In spite of the fact that the entire larger community outside of Mormonism agrees that the King James Version is really the poorest of them all, and that there are lots of errors in that translation, and that almost everyone outside of Mormonism recommends that you use a different translation. And I'm simply going to ask here, might you wonder, might you notice, why would the LDS Church want its members to stick with the King James Version? What would be good reasons for that, knowing this information? And I think that that kind of lays itself out pretty easily. Um, that the church leaders really don't want members to have to deal with the heirs of the 1769 King James Version or the King James Version generally. And the best way to do that is to isolate members into only using the King James Version and not really dealing with biblical criticism um, so that they end up not having to run into these problems. Um, so we'll give another example of some of these. Uh, you can't really see it there. Um, I'm going to see if I can make this full screen, if I can see any of those a little better. But you'll notice that there's you can read these now. So you'll notice that some of these, like soothsayer is the correct word in place of prudent. Uh, enchanter is the correct word instead of eloquent orator. Uh, honor instead of grievously afflict. In other words, the translators of the King James Version got it really bad, badly wrong. This is why the greater Christian community detests to some degree the King James Version and thinks of it as the, the worst way in which to interact and experience the uh, sacred text of the Bible. And as you go through, there are lots of them. Howling beast, hyena, jackal, wild beast, and dragons. Uh, delight, but instead of delight, uh, the King James Version says of quick understanding. Um, sick man is the right word, but instead the King James Version says standard bearer. So it, they just messed up a bunch. And Mormonism tells you the King James Version is the best. Outside of the inspired version of the Bible by Joseph Smith, which we're not going to use, the King James Version is the best version. All our members should stick with it. Don't use anything else. And I just want you to say to yourself, hmm, I can kind of see why that might be. Uh, 
All right. So 1769 Bible errors. Um, and I want to note one other thing too. Again, unless apologists want to acknowledge that Joseph Smith had a photographic memory, we ought to recognize that no scribes tell us that Joseph Smith used the Bible directly in his translation. We should also notice that when we get to the inspired version of the Bible, where uh, Joseph Smith, by the way, will folks, will you hit the like button and hit subscribe if you're not a, a subscriber to this channel? Um, and, and keep doing comments and stuff. We'll go back through these at the end, but that would be super helpful to me as, uh, as we work our way through all of this. Um, uh, so I appreciate it very much. Um, we should also note that in the inspired translation of the Bible, we now know, and we'll get to it in a moment, but we now know that Adam Clark's commentary was uh, heavily borrowed from, I, I would like to use the word plagiarized but heavily borrowed from in Joseph Smith's creation of his inspired Bible translation. And none of the scribes there tell us that Joseph Smith was working with Adam Clark's commentary. So because of those two instances, anytime apologists tell you that we can't make any jumps because none of the scribes tell us that Joseph Smith worked with any of these books directly, all you have to do is say, but isn't that true about the 1769 version of the Bible as well as Adam Clark's commentary? And don't both those examples run counter to the imposition you just uh, you just threw at me? And the reality is, yes, it does. So the errors are significant, and we have to kind of wrestle uh, with those as well. So this is slide 15. And then I wanted to show, let's see if I can find it here. Um, you know, when we go back into Mormonism and look at how the church framed the inspired translation of the Bible, how Joseph Smith framed the inspired translation of the Bible, it becomes clear that, you know, Joseph Smith, the article of faith, right, that we believe in the Bible as far as it is translated correctly, right there. Uh, Joseph, the prophet, always referred to his work with the Bible as the new translation. That's how it was known in the early years of the church. Um, we should be appreciative of the great spiritual heritage source of inspiration that has come to us through the Bible, yet readers the world over have recognized for many years that the Bible has not come to us in its original purity and plainness. The prophet noticed that also the angel Moroni quoted some passages that differed from those found in our present King James Version. And so there's this idea, right, from sundry revelations which have been received, it was apparent that many important points touching the salvation of man had been taken out of the Bible or lost before it was compiled. Notice that logic juxtaposed against using the 1769, God allows Joseph Smith to use the 1769 version of the Bible and carry over tons of errors into the Book of Mormon text. Uh, so juxtapose those two. All right, next one um, is Deutero-Isaiah. And I just want to make sure, I might be missing a spot here. So, nope, I've got it here later on. So Deutero-Isaiah, what Deutero-Isaiah is, this is the idea that in the chapters of Isaiah, chapter 1 through chapter 66, that most and almost all, notice Wikipedia here says, while virtually no scholars today attribute the entire book 
or even most of it to one person. Mormonism really doesn't have its members dealing with biblical criticism. You stay inside the bubble of Mormonism and you really don't understand the issues of Christianity outside of it. And you get a little tidbit here, a tidbit there, but you really don't get a lot. And you're really insulated, right? And you kind of recognize that. I, I recognized it as a, as a believing Mormon. And I thought, well, I'm right, so why should I bother? The church wants you to think you're right, and why not bother? Because if you start to look outside of the church and gather a wider scope of information, it is deeply problematic uh, to the faithful narrative inside the church. The idea behind Deutero and uh, uh, I think it's Trito or Tritio Isaiah is that the book of Isaiah is believed to have at a minimum two authors. So the original Isaiah writing chapters 1 through 39, and then Deutero Isaiah likely being so a second Isaiah author who's not Isaiah writing chapters 40 through 55, and then Tritio Isaiah chapters 56 through 66. Now, there is some discrepancy between whether there is a third Isaiah or not, but there are significant reasons for why scholars believe this, and it's that because of what Isaiah is saying in those chapters, chapter 1 through 39, different from chapter 40 to 55, different from chapter 56 to 66, is that scholars can tell that each of them take place in very different time periods. And, and so because of that, um, we, we, again, we, meaning the greater by far, almost everyone in the academic community believes there are at least two and likely three authors of the book of Isaiah. And the reason this is a problem is because second Isaiah would have occurred just after, uh, Lehi and Nephi and their family take the brass plates, which is what contained the book of Isaiah that they end up copying over into the book of Mormon. Uh, they take the brass plates that Deutero Isaiah occurs just after that, a, a decade, two, three, whatever it is. And, um, and, and that uh, for sure, third Isaiah occurs so far after that it would be impossible for his words to be on the brass plates if the far wide majority are correct. The problem is that the Book of Mormon contains multiple chapters from Deutero-Isaiah and contains one chapter from Tritio-Isaiah. And so that becomes deeply problematic. In other words, the Isaiah chapters of the Book of Mormon contain chapters of Isaiah that would have been written after Nephi procures the brass plates and takes them with his family over to the New World. And so that becomes uh, becomes a problem. So this is slide uh, 16. And let me read a little bit about uh, Deutero-Isaiah. This is one I want to spend just a moment on, just so you understand it. So here's what some of the, the things that I, I copied over um, from another article that explains the issue. And this is from a non-Mormon article. This was just a, a write-up from a scholarly perspective on Deutero and Tritio-Isaiah. The first Isaiah chapters are believed by scholars to be from 1 to 39, while Deutero-Isaiah or 2nd Isaiah covers chapters 40 through 55, and Tritio-Isaiah or 3rd Isaiah cover 56 through 66. Scholars believe for reasons we will outline below that the historical Isaiah lived in the 8th and 7th century BCE 
while the Deutero-Isaiah material would not have been written until after exile into Babylon, which was 586 BCE, significant amount of time later. Because the brass plate, no, this is this was from a Mormon article. Because the brass plates were taken from Laban at 600 BCE, this might be from LDS discussions. Uh, 600 BCE, this is problematic as the Book of Mormon cites extensively from the Deutero-Isaiah chapters, which were not composed until after the brass plates were taken from Laban. Yes, this is from LDS discussions. A good example is the presumption that Jerusalem has already been destroyed. So second and third Isaiah already speak from the point of view that Jerusalem had already been destroyed. And there are multiple other factors that lead to scholars believing this. It's not just one or two things happening. <clears throat> Lehi cites Deutero Isaiah material in second Nephi chapter one verses 13 through 14 in verse 23. And then Jacob reads the words of Deutero Isaiah into the Book of Mormon in 2 Nephi chapter 8. Not only does this Deutero Isaiah material appear in the Book of Mormon, but it contains the exact King James Bible language that, as we discussed in the previous section, which he also does, includes mistranslations, italicized text, and especially in this case, late additions. Uh, furthermore, the themes that come out in the Deutero-Isaiah uh, influence the Book of Mormon beyond just the words of Lehi and Jacob. The following verses from 2 Nephi are copied from the King James Version of Isaiah, chapter 52. And this is uh, 2 Nephi, chapter 8, 20 through 24 through 25. They're from Isaiah 52, 1 through 2, which is identified in the Deutero-Isaiah chapters. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion, put on thy faithful garments, O Jerusalem, and it goes on and on. Uh, this material is not limited to just 2 Nephi either, as much of Isaiah chapter 52 is spoken by Jesus Christ in 3 Nephi, as well as Isaiah 52, 24 being cited in Moroni 10:31. This material was not composed prior to Lehi leaving. It presents another instance where the author of the Book of Mormon is using material that is anachronistic to the Book of Mormon narrative, which dates the Book of Mormon not as an ancient text, but a 19th century book written by someone with access to the King James Bible. Again, LDS discussions. These chapters could not historically be incorporated in the Book of Mormon since they could not have been on the plates that Lehi left with which puts the inclusion of this material as a very problematic anachronism. Just as with the Book of Abraham issues, Joseph Smith did not have the foresight that in the years following his death, we would have a much better understanding of biblical history and did not realize he was including a late edition throughout the Book of Mormon. And then we should note uh, LDS scholar, uh, David Bakavoy says this, one of the most insightful perspectives held by mainstream biblical scholars involves the historical development of the book of Isaiah. Since the 20th century, all mainstream scholars have held the position that chapters 40 through 66 were written after the Jewish exile into Babylon, uh, 586 BCE. Scholars typically identify the exilic material in 40 through 55 by the title Deutero-Isaiah, and the post-exilic material in 56 through 66 by the title of Tritio Isaiah. 
though these works may have been written by multiple authors. In other words, what he's saying is there's at least three authors, but it, it's not limited to three authors. It could be 20 authors. But what we know is that among these authors, no matter how many there were, at least three, is that they were written at three very distinct different time periods. And the last two time periods came after Nephi and his family took the brass plates over to the new world. This means, of course, that the second half of the book of Isaiah was not written by the historical Isaiah, a prophet who lived in Jerusalem during the 8th century BCE. For Latter-day Saints, this presents a direct challenge to, to, to traditionally held paradigms concerning the Book of Mormon. Since some of this material is not only attributed to Isaiah, it has had a significant impact on the Book of Mormon. If mainstream scholars are correct, and again, as you see from the Wikipedia thing up there, Virtually no scholars today attribute the entire book or even most of it to one person. Um, if mainstream scholars are correct, then this material would not have been available to Lehi's family as something they could have taken with them to the Americas. And I want you to start to sense here that if you're going to be a believer, you have to start going with the less rational reasoning in order to make a faithful narrative hold up. And that if you go with the most rational answer, and the most rational answer uh, in any given moment is the one that requires the least amount of allowances and the least amount of conjecture and best explains the data points that we have. So in this instance, we have multiple clues in the text that says that there is more than three authors or more than two authors, I'm sorry, more than one author from at least three different time periods. And that, that knowing the time periods and what happened, it would be impossible for Lehi and Nephi and their families to have the chapters that were implemented into the Book of Mormon with them on the brass plates when they came over. Now, apologists, if you go look at Fair Mormon, they're going to address this issue. They're going to tell you that while the majority of scholars believe that, that here's ways in which you can make it work. Notice that every time apologists play that game where they say, yes, that's the most rational conclusion, but what if you make some allowances? What if this is the case? What if that is the case? Notice that's the moment you're starting to add conjecture and allowances. When you do that, I want you to note that you are taking the less rational position among the two conclusions. You're free to do that. But you also have to note that if you take the less rational conclusion this time and this time and this time and this time, maybe you do it 100 times, maybe you do it 500 times. But if you keep taking the less rational position, it becomes statistically impossible for it to happen so many times. So I simply want to note that. Because at this point, we're going to get into some really good stuff. And you need to start recognizing how much you have to give the benefit of the doubt to the church rather than allow your brain to side with the most rational conclusions. Okay? Okay, so here's the next one. Next slide, we're going to talk about Joseph Smith's work with the Adam Clark's commentary. This is going to be super small. You're not going to be able to see it very well. Um, but at the very top is the stance of Professor Thomas Wayment and 
uh, Haley Wilson Lamont, uh, who was the researcher uh, under him, when they did their project at BYU examining the uh, inspired Bible translation. So that's the quote at the very top. We'll get into that quote. I'll put it up on the screen really big here in a moment. But down below, they're just showing a couple of examples. And so again, it's really small, but I think if you get really close to your screen and stare at it, you can read those. But all it's doing is showing you three, um, three particular examples in the midst of a whole bunch of examples where it seems very clear that Joseph Smith borrowed heavily. And again, I would like to use the word plagiarize. He borrowed heavily from Adam Clark's commentary in order to do his inspired Bible translation. We should note that when we were looking at the church's website, that the church and Joseph Smith framed the LDS Bible translation a certain way. If you're young, you may not know this. I don't know how the church frames it today for you, but if you're my age and if you're if you don't believe me, my two cents is, folks, if you're watching this right now, put a comment on the comments. Um, for those who are watching live, you're going to have a certain comment section just to the right of the screen. Uh, share what your experience was. How did you learn what the uh, inspired translation of the Bible was and why it was needed and what it sought out to accomplish? And folks, if you're watching this after it was live, down below, you can put in the normal YouTube comment section, the comments. And my hope is that if believers come on here and they're watching, that you'll read what others were taught in the 1990s, the 1980s, the 1970s, and, and as far back as, depending on the age of people who are viewing this. But here's what I was taught. I was taught that many plain and precious parts of the Bible were removed both unintentionally because of translation issues and intentionally because of deceitful and conspiring men. I, I can see firsthand, by the way, I acknowledge that if I go and look at the Old Testament, it mentions numerous books that we don't have. Those books are gone. For whatever reason, the, the, the Bible claims that there were certain books that were part of all of this that we no longer have today. Joseph Smith claimed that because of all the stuff that was missing and corrupted, that God had given him the assignment to restore the Bible, which was corrupted, to its perfect form. So we were taught as members, and it was explicitly said, we were taught as members that he was going into the Bible and he was putting back the things that were lost and he was fixing the things that had been corrupted. And what we now find today is that Joseph Smith took a contemporary source. Adam Clark wrote a biblical commentary that was used prevalently in the early 1800s. Joseph Smith takes that book and takes the brilliant ideas from Adam Clark and simply copies them over to his Bible translation so that really it's just a new Bible translation. And it really isn't a restoration of a corrupted Bible. And so folks in the comments can speak to whether what I just said is real uh, and true, and that's the way it was taught, or if, uh, or if something else, uh, if, I'm, if I'm being dishonest, or if I was misunderstanding the way I was taught Mormonism when I was younger. Okay? <clears throat> so that's the inspired Bible. 
And then we'll go back here to the quote from uh, BYU. So this is Haley Wilson and Thomas Wayman. Haley Wilson was the undergrad researcher. Thomas Wayman was the head of the project. And they were uh, they did a project that they named Rethinking Joseph Smith's Bible Translation. And this came right out of BYU. And, and I can show you that site here in just a moment. In fact, I'll put it up on the screen uh, just so folks can see it. It's right here. Journal of Undergraduate Research, a recently re uh, recovered source, Rethinking Joseph Smith's Bible Translation. Why do we have to rethink it? Because we framed it a certain way and it's not what we told people it was. And so the money quote out of here, and I can even, I can even uh, find it here in a moment, but our research has revealed that the number of direct parallels between Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible and Adam Clark's biblical commentary are simply too numerous and explicit to posit happenstance or coincidental overlap. And so it is so prevalent that it becomes apparent to the scholarship of BYU that Joseph Smith, and they like to use the word directly borrowed, but the, the correct word is plagiarized because he doesn't acknowledge to anyone that that's what he did. And he claims to be restoring the Bible to its ancient form and doesn't tell a single soul that he is taking ideas from another person's work and making it his own. So now if I just do a word search for happenstance, and there it is. Here's the money quote. Our research has revealed that the number of direct parallels between Smith's translation and Adam Clark's biblical commentary are simply too numerous and explicit to posit happenstance or coincidental overlap. And you are free to read all of that. There are multiple interviews. I interviewed Haley Lamont a few years ago and John DeLynn's interviewed her as well. So you can go follow that rabbit, uh, that rabbit hole if you want to. Um, all right, next. Let me make sure I've covered that one all the way. That was 17 and 18. Okay, next up is the Mormon temple in masonry. Um, anybody who's been to the temple, again, the church just recently uh, re revised or altered its temple ordinances again. It's done it multiple times. Um, but if you go back far enough, again, if you go back to when I went to the temple, this certainly would ring familiar. I don't know whether it rings familiar for people today, but I'm sure somebody in the comments, again, in this part, if you don't mind, and, and folks, by the way, please do help me on this. When I'm speaking of these issues and I'm framing them in the way that I want to communicate to the viewers how I was taught Mormonism, what kind of Mormonism was imposed on me, and what Mormonism actually is now that more and more data comes out, it would be really helpful if in the comments, if you guys would note whether what I'm saying is accurate or not. And if you'll put it into the YouTube comments below, if you're watching this after the fact and let people know whether what I'm saying is accurate or not. When I went through the temple in 1999, let me think that through. My son was born in 99, 1997. When I went through the Washington, D.C. temple in September of 1997, this would have rung very familiar to me. 
It's because Joseph Smith, when he creates the endowment in Nauvoo in 1842, I believe, he very much, he's already gotten heavily involved in masonry and he is, he is borrowing heavily from Masonic rituals in order to create the endowment. Apologists don't disagree with this, by the way. They would go, yep, that's what he did. And they would try to explain it away by saying, yeah, but there's the endowment and there's the presentation of the endowment. And they would go like, let's add some conjecture. Let's make some allowances. Let's, let's separate these things out. And let's say that one's not the other. But the reality is that much of the endowment ceremony is Masonic. Um, the signs, the tokens, the postures, the 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 three knocks. Uh, there's so much. The square, the compass, the level, um, the the phrase of curious workmanship. By the way, is Masonic. There is so much in the LDS temple, at least in the original endowment, and up until when I stopped going ten years ago. That was Masonic in its nature. So you see the the head uh, Mason. It says here it's the uh, worshipful ma master, and then the SD is the uh, the senior deacon. Let me turn my phone off just so I don't have any more interruptions. The senior deacon. So the worshipful master. What is that? The past grip of the fellow craft says the senior deacon. Has it a name? Says the worshipful master. It has. Says the deacon. The master says, will you give it to me? The deacon says, I did not so receive it, neither will I so impart it. And then the five points of fellowship, this is what used to happen. Um, we don't do this exactly at the temple anymore. Now you just kind of put your hand through. Uh, they put their hand through on your shoulder. You reach through the hole in the veil and you do the, the temple handshake. And then your, your mouth to ear so that you can get information and then repeat it back. But back in the day, you used to do the full five points of fellowship. The five points of fellowship are inside of the right foot, by the side of the right foot, knee to knee, breast to breast, hand to back, and mouth to ear. And then the worshipful master, the five points of fellowship are foot to foot, knee to knee, breast to breast, hand to back, cheek to cheek, or mouth to ear. Again, regardless of whether you're a believer or a critic, everybody who is informed is saying, yep, Joseph Smith stole much of Masonic ritual and made it at least in some way part of the Mormon endowment. Um, and so there's that one. Okay, next. Second Nephi chapter nine, verse 39, the book of Mormon published in 1830, uh, purportedly written uh, between 50, 50, I'm sorry, 559 and 545 BC, that particular section we're talking about. Remember to be carnally minded is death and to be spiritually minded is life eternal. And then uh, in Romans 8, 6, it says, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So these are extremely close. And what we need to note is that Romans is in the New Testament and Romans is allegedly written by Paul, although there's debate out there about what's written by Paul and what isn't. But it should be at least sufficient to understand that Jesus lives his life. He dies on the cross. Again, if you're if you're a believer, because I want to I want to work with the faithful framework. And because we have to hold these things accountable to that. Um, 
when Jesus dies, crucified on the cross, he's put in the tomb. Three days later, he rises, and then he ascends into heaven. And, a, and, and we know that a significant amount of time passes before whoever Paul is, that he shows up on the scene and starts writing his work. He is not, although, yes, as a believer, we would believe that he met the Savior on the road to Damascus, and we would leave open room that he met the Savior on, a, a, on other occasions. He was not a direct witness to the ministry of Christ, and um, he is writing late after the fact. It's in the New Testament, so this is not information that would have been on the brass plates. This is not information that the Jaredites would have in their record. The only way we can explain that these two uh, things are so close and in both works, in Romans and in 2 Nephi, is if we make room that Heavenly Father is revealing to both authors the same exact words to write down, essentially, the, the same gist, not just an idea, but even almost the exact language in which to convey that idea. And recognize that when we do that, we are adding allowances and conjecture because the most reasonable, rational conclusion that requires the least amount of conjecture is that Joseph Smith or whoever the author of the Book of Mormon is, is a 19th century person who is plagiarizing from Romans 8.6. And it gets worse. Um, so stick with me. So there's that one. And it's not just that you have these two New Testament authors, or you have this New Testament and Book of Mormon author, and you know they're both interacting with Christ. That's not the way that even a faithful understanding of who these two authors are and how they're getting their words comes about. So it's it, even faithfully, this would be really difficult to fit this camel through the eye of a needle. Okay, but it gets worse. So this one here, uh, let me enlarge my screen. This one here is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. And this is Moroni chapter 10, 8 through 14, 16, and 17. Notice how similar those are. Now, they're not exact, but recognize no good plagiarizer copies exact. For everybody out there watching, if you've ever plagiarized to get your book report done quickly, none of you ever, if you did, you're an idiot. If you, if you copied the entire text of another project and then put your name at the top, then, then you can just shut this off now and, and just go bury your head in the sand because the reality is that none of us did that, at least if you have any mild degree of intelligence. You copied somebody else's words and you changed them just enough that you hoped nobody would notice. And that's exactly what happens here. So now in that last one, I'm going to go back to that last one. You could, I guess if you really want to stretch things, you could say, look, man, both people were given by God the same idea and, and they just so happened to, to get it and to write it down. But now when we go to the next one, it is so lengthy that it becomes deeply problematic to make that now your explanation. 
And so written by Paul in AD 54, this would be, this is an older, I should say that way. If we believe the Book of Mormon is historical, this is a, this is a more recent telling of these sacred words. And the Book of Mormon is a, uh, actually, I'm saying that wrong. So let me, let me put this in, maybe say this concisely, because this is an important point. So when Nephi and Lehi come over here with the brass plates in BC, they continue the rest of their time in the new world without having access to anything that comes after that boat trip getting to them. You would have to, again, add significant allowances and conjecture to make that argument. And yet somehow Moroni has almost the exact wording that's found in the New Testament when he has no business knowing such, unless you're again going to make the argument that Heavenly Father simply gave both of these authors the exact same scriptures to write down and almost verbatim. Now, again, there's differences. Ask yourself, what is the more rational conclusion based on this data? And the most rational conclusion is that whoever the author of the Book of Mormon is, they are plagiarizing from 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. Um, so just notice that. Okay, so there's that one. But it gets worse. So... This um, this is Mormon nine twenty four and Mark sixteen seventeen through eighteen, and it is almost verbatim. The trouble here, though, is that again, Mormonism doesn't want you to go looking into um, biblical criticism, and, and we'll we'll explain. The, I know some of you folks are going to go. I know what the main problem is here. I'm going to get to it, I promise, but I'm going to use it. I'm going to do that one on the next slide. The first problem we have to deal with is who Mark is. So Mormonism tells a story that Jesus is resurrected and immediately the 12 apostles form the Christian church of which Christ is at the head. And now we have Christianity and the Jews don't like Christianity, so they persecute it. And Mark is one of the witnesses to Jesus Christ, and he's writing down the things that Jesus Christ said, but that's not at all reality. First off, Mark comes significantly late. I believe Mark is believed to have written his account in 70 AD, and Jesus would have died in like 33 AD. So we're talking four decades later. And what we understand about Mark, again, this is what the majority of biblical scholarship says is that um, Mark is attempting because he is not a firsthand witness to Christ. And he senses that the people around him who were closer to the actual experience of Jesus are beginning to die. And there aren't a lot of witnesses left. And so Mark begins to collect accounts of them. One, um, as he collects those accounts, he is trying to essentially record who this Jesus man was. And, uh, and he's writing it decades late. Mark is, the way this is framed by 
by almost all biblical scholars is that Mark isn't uh, a, a direct church leader who is receiving revelation and hence being handed the words of God. Rather, he's just a guy who's going around and collecting uh, witness statements and trying to put the story down on paper so it's not lost when all these people die, and so it doesn't get corrupted if it's only an oral retelling of the story. Second is that Jesus wasn't the, the, er, the first generation, second generation, and maybe even third generation of followers of Jesus after his death weren't Christians. They were Jews. And they didn't separate from the Christian church until the third or fourth generation at the earliest after. Mark, it would seem very out of place that Mark is receiving some sort of revelation from God. Rather, he would just be trying his best to write the words down of what had happened. And then you've got Morona or Mormon in the New World with no access to Mark's words writing down exactly the same thing. This is deeply problematic, but it gets worse. The bigger problem is that the Book of Mormon contains parts of Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, and, and those, those weren't in the original manuscript of Mark, and I'll try to explain this the best I can. And I've got a little video I'll show to back this up. The earliest manuscript records of Mark stop at Mark chapter 16, verse 8. Verses 9 through 20, both for reasons I'll talk about in just a moment, but also because it reads slightly different than Mark chapter 1, 1 through 16, verse 8, indicates that uh, somebody came in and didn't like Mark's ending, which simply leaves with the women were afraid and the tomb was empty. And somebody comes along shortly thereafter and adds in their own uh, final writing into Mark as if it was Mark who wrote it. Virtually all scholars believe that Mark chapter 16 verse 9 through 20 was not part of the original gospel because the original manuscripts don't have it. They end with Mark 16, verse 8. Then the manuscripts that are just slightly older, they have 9 through 20, but they're different versions. In other words, it's, it's as if there were multiple attempts to finish Mark's gospel, and nobody quite agreed on how to do it. And so there are errors in the verses 9 through 20 in the early manuscripts that are not the earliest, which lack 9 through 20. And so now I'm going to play a little video here from YouTube, and uh, this will hopefully explain it uh, as well. Um, in fact, let me do this. Let me stop my screen. And let me put it back up, but make sure I've got some sound. And I'm really hoping that you guys will hear this. One of the most puzzling parts of Mark's gospel is the ending, because it, it ends so abruptly. Um, in our earliest manuscripts, the gospel ends in verse 8, which says that the women were terrified, were frightened, and they had heard the announcement of the resurrection, but they said nothing to anyone. 
That's a very strange way to end the gospel. Uh, there is a longer ending, verses 9 through 20, but it's clearly not written in Mark's style. It's different vocabulary, different style, different theology. Almost certainly Mark didn't write those last 10 or so verses, verses 9 to 20. Uh, so what happened? Well, some scholars think that last page was lost, in fact. Probably a better solution, however, is that Mark intended to end his gospel that abruptly because the gospel itself is a call to respond. Just like the women, the readers of the gospel have heard the announcement of the resurrection. How are they going to respond to that announcement? Are they going to respond with faith, with fear? So the whole gospel becomes a call to decision. So Mark ends his gospel at 16 verse 9. And it, he again, it's the belief of the far and wide majority of scholars that such was intentional. Oop, let me pause that. Uh, was intentional. And so hence, it even becomes more problematic that somehow Mormon is putting this into the Book of Mormon, um, if that makes any sense. So hopefully you understand. But this is this is really problematic. And again, Mormonism wants you to really stick in, you know, play inside baseball. We're going to really stick in a in an echo chamber. We're going to stay, you know, inside this insulated space where you don't really have to deal with these issues because you, as a believing Mormon, you don't understand all of this because you've never been asked to deal with it. But outside in the greater Christian world, these are the kinds of things that are being debated and gone over. Um, so there's that one. Okay, next. Uh, Alma the Younger's conversion matches up in the main points almost perfectly in the same order as the Apostle Paul's conversion. Um, so we should note that, that one seems to be plagiarized from the other, and because uh, Acts absolutely had no access to the Book of Mormon, and because the Book of Mormon was translated <coughs> in a modern time, the, the only rational way to explain this, unless you say it's just a coincidence, the most rational way to explain this is that uh, whoever the author of the Book of Mormon is, they are plagiarizing um, from the conversion of Paul to make it sound like one of the characters in their book. So there's that one. All right, and then we'll wrap up here with a couple of others. Um, I don't have it here, but Emanuel Swedenberg um, is a prolific uh, minister, I guess is the best way to say it, and uh, writer. And he uh, is writing things that are available, I think it's like late 1700s perhaps. I didn't, again, I should have done a ton more research, but I didn't want this to go super long. And we are already at about an hour and a half. Emanuel Swedenberg, um, I'm just looking at one of the comments here. Give me one second. So 98% of LDS don't get it. We focus on the obfuscation, not the obfuscation, not the treasure. Okay, so uh, Emanuel Swedenberg's teachings discussed later in more detail are startlingly recognizable, startlingly uh, recognizable to the student of LDS theology. He taught that there were three heavens, the celestial being, the most inward and refined. There are three levels within the celestial glory. 
Marriage for all eternity is an absolute requirement for entry into the highest of these heavens. He witnessed a marriage in heaven and cop and stated that the husband was arrayed in the priesthood robes of Aaron and the wife wore apparel suggestive of a queen with a crown on her head. The world of spirits is a place of preparation. Uh, let me get this off the screen because that's not it. So uh, we'll get to that in just a moment. The world of spirits is a place of preparation for either heaven or perdition. There are angels who communicate between the heavens. He likens the heavens to the celestial, terrestrial, and the natural or telestial, uh, to the sun, to the moon, to the stars. Uh, the church, the church of, uh, that Christ established has passed from the earth. In other words, an apostasy. The Lord will establish a new church on earth once more. Little children who die, Christian or not, go directly to heaven. Since God creates man in free will, God does not send man to heaven or perdition. Man makes his choice himself. Opposition in all things. Man is not saved by faith alone, but must show works from a changed heart. Uh, Swedenborg echoes concepts found in the LDS sacrament prayer. Uh, one way to qualify for perdition is to know the truth and deny it. Celestial beings incorporate the law of consecration into their lives. The creation of the Garden of Eden stories are allegories to our spiritual progress, and God was once a man or is a exalted man. So there, and that was, I started off with A, and I got all the way to S, so however many letters A through S is, that's how many points there were. But um, notice that there's a lot of them, and they have crossover to Mormonism, and it would be highly unlikely that Swedenborg just by luck and chance got, you know, 19 different facets of Mormonism dead on. Also, we should note that the word of wisdom, we teach the idea, even President Hinckley's on the record of saying that there is uh, no way uh, that the word of wisdom could have been known in Joseph Smith's day. Hence, it was miraculous, this law of health, when in reality, uh, that's not true. Um, so let me skip to the next slide. And uh, again, you're going to want to be full screen. You can barely read this, but these are the uh, statements on alcohol, hot drinks, by the way, specifically mentioned as hot drinks. This is all in Joseph Smith's contemporary time. And this was in a 1806 book, Means of Preserving Health and Preventing Diseases by a Dr. Shadrach Ricketson printed by Collins, Perkins, and Company, New York, 1806. And it quoted several well-known physicians of the time, Percival J. Fothergill, uh, Leek, and Willich, Cullen, and Rush. These were all doctors who were prominent in Joseph Smith's day, or just before, who were explicitly on the record as saying the things you are now seeing on your screen. So alcohol, hot drinks, tobacco, meat, and if you notice, meat, for instance, in hot seasons and climates to abstain from much animal food. Again, Joseph Smith isn't creating anything new that Heavenly Father needed to tell him to do. Joseph Smith is taking the wisdom of his day, and he's implementing it into Mormon theology. So again, you have to face whether, whether you're going to go with the most rational conclusion uh, or not. Um, because any conclusion besides 
Joseph Smith is plagiarizing requires additional conjecture and allowances. And, and by the way, the means of logic, I need a loose translation here. I need a tight translation there. I need a catalyst theory here. I need a literal translation on the kinderhook plates. Like when you go from a faithful perspective, the modes at which you get back to belief vary all over the place. If you're going to go with the critic's perspective, you just have to go with one theory. And that is that Joseph borrowed from sources of his day and created Mormonism and the standard works within it. All right, there's uh, the word of wisdom. Uh, and then the last one, let's see here. This is the book of Moses, uh, which in Mormonism, we don't really use that much. And I kind of can see why. Uh, but the books, book of Moses is heavily borrowed from the words and the themes of Matthew chapter 4, Matthew and uh, Mark chapter 7, Luke chapter 4, but mostly from Matthew chapter 4. Moses 1.1 is comparable to Matthew 4.8, up into an exceeding high mountain. Moses 1.12, Matthew 4.9, Satan says, worship me. Moses 1.15, Matthew 4.9, uh, Luke 4, 7, worship God for him only shalt thou serve. Moses 1, 17, Matthew 4, 9, and worship me, so on and so forth. Depart hence Satan, worship me, depart hence Satan, depart hence Satan. Um, the rest of the chapter is, chapter is sprinkled with language that is shared among the Gospels, some that is unique to the Gospel of John and the language from the rest of the New Testament and Old Testament. So the the amount of stuff going on here is is uh, significant, uh, and so I think each of us have got to kind of sit with that. To the point here, wrapping up, to the point where I think we should side with Richard Bushman on two points, um, and and Bushman gets right to the edge. He goes, man, I, he acknowledges so much of the problem, um, but then he stops short and says, but I believe there were gold plates. And, and I'm telling you right now, if, if you can get to where Bushman is and just let go of that one more idea, and there's plenty of reason to believe there weren't gold plates or that there were plates that were fabricated to look like gold plates, but were obscured by cloths and other means so that no one got a significant look at the plates, then you're just a hop, skip, and a jump to, to settling on that the church is uh, not real, not true, not historical in terms of its truth claims being based on real historical events that happened with divine messengers and with God and Jesus themselves. And so here's the two things that Richard Bushman says. He says this about the Book of Mormon, but I hope today you also see it's about the Book of Moses. It's about the inspired Bible translation. Um, it, it can also be argued. I didn't even get into the Book of Abraham today, but there are points at which we can prove uh, that the material in the book of Abraham is overlapping with sources outside of the book of Abraham that were contemporary to Joseph Smith. Bushman says there is phrasing everywhere, long phrases. By the way, this was in my podcast. I love this Mormon discussions podcast number 182. You can go back and listen to it and you can hear Bushman say this. There is phrasing everywhere, long phrases that if you Google them, you will find them in 19th century writings the theology of the Book of Mormon is very much 19th century theology. By the way, we did not get into the sermons of Joseph Smith's day, the Methodist camp meetings. If you want to uh, 
learn a little bit more about those. I had this similar conversation with Kara Burrell on her channel a, a couple of days ago, and uh, you can uh, go to her YouTube channel and listen to our conversation. And we do much of the same stuff here, though we go into a few different areas with her and we went into a few different areas here with mine. Um, very much 19th century theology. It carries the sermons. I, Brian Whitney, uh, I went to the church history department with, uh, to see Brian Whitney and he introduced me to Stephen Harper and Mark Ashurst McGee. And I walked all around me and my wife, I've got pictures of it. And what Brian Whitney's project was at that time I went to visit him as he was going through the sermons of ministers that were contemporary to Joseph Smith. And he's flipping through these pages. He's saying, Bill, you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe how much overlap there is. Bushman's right. The, the theology of the Book of Mormon is very much 19th century theology, and it reads like a 19th century understanding of the Hebrew Bible as an Old Testament, unquote. It also reads like the first book of Napoleon. So I would also add this about the rest of Mormonism in terms of its early standard works. It also reads in some ways as if it is borrowed from 19th century material and heavy plagiarism of the Bible. Here's also Richard Bushman. Joseph Smith, by the way, notice again, Bushman wants to believe so bad, but notice his intellectual honesty when pressed. Joseph Smith's books of Moses, notice he mentions Moses, and Abraham and the writings of Enoch and the book of Moses bear a resemblance to this large corpus of scripture in that they came in the form of writings in another person's name. Joseph was producing pseudopigrapha. That's Richard Bushman, 2017, USU. What he's saying, pseudopigrapha, is when an author writes a text, puts it in the words of ancient prophets, claims that's who wrote it, but it's really that modern person who wrote the text out. What Bushman is saying is that Joseph Smith appears to be the author of the book of Moses. He appears to be the author of the book of Abraham and the writings of Enoch, which I don't even know where those are, that Joseph Smith was producing pseudopigrapha. Folks, if you're going to be a rational thinker, you have to go with the most rational conclusion. And if you do anything else by making allowances and conjecture, you are being irrational. You can pick the second most rational conclusion, knowing that the other conclusion is more rational, and you're being irrational. It's not even close. This is just one particular problem in Mormonism. Go look up the Book of Abraham translation. Go look up Joseph Smith's folk magic. Go look up Joseph Smith's uh, marriages to young women and who those women were, uh, how he approached them, how he sought out women that were vulnerable, how he manipulated them, how he got them to be in his home so that he could get close to them. Go read that. Uh, polyandry women with that were already married to other men. When you use your critically thinking mind, you are left with the conclusion that if you had the scales of balance, right? If you had these scales and you're like, this is the church is true and this is the evidence against it. I mean, it would just be weighed down, right? This, this, the church isn't true would be so, or isn't true, would be so heavy when you deal with all the issues collectively 
that as John Delanois says, Occam's razor forces you. And it did. It forced me to decide that I just couldn't believe this anymore. And once I stopped believing it, I started to give weight to outside perspectives. It get, it got even worse. Um, and so that's today's episode. Folks, donations have dropped off in the last few months. If you like what we're doing, will you do me a giant favor? Will you go to mormondiscussionpodcast.org? Click the donate button. There's a drop-down window there. I don't care if you send it to Mormon Discussion Podcast or if you send it to one of the others. Would you please make a donation? Five bucks a month because I want to, until my dying breath, I want to do this the rest of my life. And I want the folks who are uh, under our umbrella, Radio Free Mormon, uh, Terry Hales, Scott uh, from Rami Umptum Ruminations, uh, Brittany Hartley from the Almost Awakened podcast. I want to support these uh, content creators and we've had donations drop off. If you like the amount of research, could you imagine the amount of time and energy it takes to understand these ideas all the way across the board? If like, I don't have a problem doing the hard work and helping you guys digest this stuff in a couple of hours, but, but we, the folks who create content of this umbrella, they need to be able to have financial backing to be able to put this time and energy in. MormonDiscussionPodcast.org, or if you need to, if you want to do a one-time donation, just to the right of this YouTube video, there'll be just, or I should say, yeah, just over there on that side, there'll be a donate button. You can send us, you know, 20 bucks, a hundred bucks, whatever it is. Um, but what would mean a lot to me is if you went to MormonDiscussionPodcast.org and set up a $5 a month recurring monthly donation, 10 bucks a month. Literally, I've probably seen 15, 10 or 15 donations uh, drop off. People have canceled because we are kind of in a little bit of a recession at the moment. Um, donations have dropped off and I haven't seen anywhere near the number of new donations come on to replace those. Um, and it makes me a little nervous. We're not scared yet, but it makes me a little nervous. And folks, if you could do that, it would mean the world to me. If you appreciate the work that we do, um, it's your way of saying, thank you. I'm grateful that you watch and listen for everybody who does donate, please. From the bottom of my heart, I've been doing this a decade now, and uh, we have 11 podcasts and 11 different podcasters who create content, and it is amazing what what we do, and I am so proud of each of them, and uh, uh, for those of you who support that work, thank you so much. It means the world to me, um, but hopefully things like this are helpful to you, and I, I think this was presented, I think, if I'm not being too arrogant. I, I think this was presented in a way that each of you could understand and, uh, and, and grasp collectively what's going on here and how Mormonism got created. Have a great day. Love everybody. You guys are all amazing. And uh, have fun.